a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. And where did this month go? About to close the door on February. Things are still getting interesting as the year unfolds. I guess you could expect that in an election year, right? This particular election year, wow. <laughs> it's just, uh, well, it's a, it's a crowd pleaser. What can I say? Anyway, I want to thank my sponsors who make this show possible this week. Roll into a, a new week and a new, uh, well, a new collection of information that I, I hope is worth your time. I hope it's something that brings value and insight and more than that, inspiration to step up and to become whoever you were born to be. I don't think it's an accident that right now, as the world kind of stands on the precipice, that, you know, there, there are certain people who are aware. You're one of them. You wouldn't be listening to this show if you weren't. But you're also uniquely prepared to move the needle where it needs to be moved. So, with that in mind, I want to thank my sponsors, including LifesavingFood.com, TMCPNation.com, Ironsight Brewing Company, that's IronsightBC.com, as well as QuiltAndSew.com. So where to begin? Couple, Just a couple quick items that crossed my mind this weekend. Of course, there's still a lot of people kind of clamoring for explanations about, well, what was the big cellular outage out about, rather, on Thursday? And, you know, the, it seems like hackers or maybe some kind of an app, a software update that just went haywire. That seems to be the popular way that people are going. But as I mentioned Friday, I tend to follow Ben Davidson, from Space Weather News, and he says it's kind of a coincidence that uh, those first outages came minutes, like about eight minutes after two major X-class solar flares and another, a third larger X-class solar, uh, solar flare took place about 12 hours later, followed by another outage. And it wasn't just AT&T, it was lots of different networks and kind of random in some ways. Some people are like, well, if it was the sun, it would have been everything all at once. Ben actually had a very good explanation on his YouTube channel, which is suspiciousobservers.com. I'm sorry, it's suspiciousobservers. Sorry. <laughs> I believe spaceweathernews.com is, is his uh, website, but his YouTube channel is suspiciousobservers. And, and he just said, look, this is the nature of of solar activity, especially big bursts of energy from the sun. Now, I'm not trying to scare you when I tell you this, but the reason that the people in officialdom, being the news media, the politicians, and so forth, the reason they really can't acknowledge that, uh, hey, this was caused by solar activities because that's something they don't have under their control, right? Well, if you just give us more money and let us uh, have more power over your life, we can control what the sun's doing as well. Everybody would know that's an outright lie. And they don't want to appear weak, and they don't want to appear incompetent. So they'll take the next best explanation. Well, you know, if we uh, had a little more power to regulate this or that, we could cover these bugs or these hackers or whatever. All I'm suggesting is there's a reason that uh, the people in charge don't want you to know that on this one, they're powerless. 
Why wouldn't they want us to know? Well, probably because we would stop trusting them. Ha! Not that they've ever given us any reason to do that. I say jokingly. By the way, speaking of reasons not to trust them, holy cow, did I really see the the head of NATO get up and talk about how, well, we're continuing to strengthen our relationship with uh, Ukraine and Ukraine will become a member of NATO. Now, look, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, provoke a fight here, but uh, that's that's the red line. Russia said we do not want NATO on our doorstep. Actually, they were given assurances that NATO would not expand further eastward, and yet it has and continues to expand. And uh, now what was this today? Oh, yeah, zerohedge.com reports there are at least 12 CIA black bases, meaning these are off-the-records bases where people would be taken, you know, presumably for imprisonment or interrogation, enhanced interrogation. We call that torture in the civilized world and so forth. No mention of bio labs, but there is confirmation the U.S. has at least 12 CIA black bases within Ukraine. Kind of makes you wonder about that. And so for the, the NATO chief to come right out and tell everybody, hey, by the way, we're working to strengthen our relationships with Ukraine, and Ukraine is going to be a member of NATO. That's precisely what Russia said. If you do that, we'll bomb you all. Now, that, that makes it seem, well, Russia's being so unreasonable. I, I got to be honest, I don't know if they are. Would you want hostile powers on your borders? That's, you know, I know I'm, well, now, but wait, Russia was the hostile ones. Were they? Are you sure you're getting the whole story, whether it's from conservative mass media or left-wing mass media? All I'm suggesting is, we are we're about to be dragged into a much larger conflict. And I, I really, honestly, I wonder, I don't think it's going to go nuclear, at least not yet. I'm hoping that uh, that cooler minds will prevail. But at the very least, it appears that uh, the West is ready to step into Ukraine and tell the Russians, okay, you got to stop. And I mean, there will be direct Western military involvement it's been pretty direct but you know they haven't really pulled off the mask and okay we are fully involved here it's been a proxy war and and god help those poor ukrainian people who are caught in the middle right they trusted Zelensky. he's gonna save us from russia he's gonna protect us from this and uh, you know when when they have sought to negotiate some kind of peace britain specifically boris the former uh, prime minister came in and, and torpedoed the thing. Why is it in the interest of the West that there not be peace? Now, I know that's a pretty loaded thing to say. Well, you must be some kind of a Putin stooge. I'm not stumping for Putin. I'm just asking you, why does it seem that Western leaders are so determined to lead us into a global conflict? We're not talking about some little brush fire war in, in Africa. We're talking about, you know, this This could have much, much bigger consequences, but that's where they seem to be heading. So I'm not telling you this to scare you. I'm telling you this just to illustrate that uh, the times are, are changing. And what we took for granted at one point that, well, you know, we've got good people working on this. Our best men are working on this right now in Washington, D.C. Where are our best people? Where is anybody with a sense 
of right and wrong as opposed to just that pragmatic, well, does it work or doesn't it? I'm sorry, but Machiavelli's got to be looking back going, wow, I had no idea they were going to run this far with, uh, with what I was teaching in The Prince. But here we are. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I are necessarily, you know, um, supposed to be running around in sackcloth and ashes and, and feeling doomed. But just understand that there's a lot of stuff we take for granted that it's, you know, our lives are still, even though things are more expensive and things are kind of contentious, life is still pretty good and peaceful and you can get what you want. I was at Costco Saturday and, man, I didn't see anybody there that seemed to be suffering too badly. We were, we were all getting exactly what we needed and a lot of what we didn't need. That's something we take for granted. And my concern is, what if that spigot was turned off? What if suddenly it wasn't so easy to come by all the things that we take for granted? That could include electricity. You know, I'm, I'm talking from not just a, a geopolitical standpoint, from the sun, you know, of what it's doing. Um, I do believe that uh, what is happening with, uh, with our climate has to do with the sun, and in particular with a 12,000-year cycle that has been observed and cataloged in which uh, there, there is a a very big change that comes not just to us, but to every planet within the solar system. And I don't think that, uh, you know, it's a matter of, well, it's God's judgment. He's just going to, <laughs> he's going to set us all straight. Maybe it is. I don't know. But what I do know is this. You and I and everybody we know are going to be tested. We're being tested right now, but the difficulty of that test is getting exponentially more difficult. And if the things we take for granted were suddenly not available to us or very difficult to, to obtain, how would you react? See, you have time to get your, your ducks in a row. You have time to prepare spiritually, mentally, to intellectually, you know, get your mind straight so that you can think clearly while people around you are, are losing their heads. Let's take advantage of that opportunity. Okay, I can't see what the future brings, okay? I'm not trying to, you know, prophesy doom and gloom to you. I'm just saying that right now things are kind of uh, precarious and are likely to get more so that way as the year goes on. The people in power are being seen for the corrupt <laughs> jackals that they are. And as their uh, hold on power starts to be threatened, I expect they're going to do some pretty desperate stuff. You and I need to be in a position to refuse whatever it is they're telling us to do. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for, uh, for tuning in got a great article here that uh, hopefully will take some of the uh, <laughs> that dark cloud away that uh, that I just uh, shared with you in the first segment. This is an article from JB Shirk from americanthinker.com and it's called as trust in government falls spiritual faith rises. You can probably guess why I wanted to share this with you because I want to encourage you to you know find strength in something other than where's a politician who will come riding to the rescue and save me. It ain't the politician that you need. It's some, something much bigger. J.B. Shirk says, There is so much latent energy beating, right, beating up right beneath the surface of Western civilization. 
And he says, everybody can feel it. Every day, people read the news with the expectation that some as-yet-unknown event will trigger something bigger, which will ignite something horrifically combustible, which will put into motion a rapidly shifting set of complex variables that will finally turn the world upside down. That sounds about right. Every public announcement is a potential spark. Every new emergency is a wobbly domino that could crash into another and cascade until everything falls apart. He says, we've all been sitting uncomfortably on pins and needles for so long that we practically eject out of our chairs every time a television, computer, or phone screen blares breaking alert. So speaking of phones, he says, the other day, a few hundred thousand mobile subscribers lost connections to their cellular networks, and amateur sleuths jumped into action, scrutinizing which carriers and cities were affected, rather were most affected, in hopes of isolating some nefarious intent behind the inconvenience. Was it a Chinese cyber attack? A series of small electromagnetic pulses set off by some terrorist cell inside the United States? A CIA NSA test run for the intelligence community before it instigates information blackouts in the run-up to the 2024 election? Or could it have been the result of a particularly strong solar flare? Well, he says nobody knows for sure, but everybody had a theory. For what it's worth... AT&T blamed the outage on an improperly executed, what did they call it? Improperly executed software update. But he says that clarification didn't answer every question or quell suspicions that something more serious had occurred. So when everyone's anxiously awaiting the end of the world, there's little room left over for mundane explanations. Nobody believes anybody right now. Now, that makes sense, right? Distrust of institutions and authority figures has skyrocketed. J.B. Shirk says news reporters have essentially become the public relations arm of the intelligence community. They repeat risable lies without even the pretense of journalistic incredulity. For instance, how could Hunter Biden's laptop, filled with videos documenting his own debaucherous and criminal activities, have been Russian disinformation? Only corporate news mouthpieces paid to deliver the IC's talking points. No, because they refuse to answer obvious questions. The public has learned to distrust their point of view. That makes sense. The intelligence community is, you know, dictating what the news will report. In the old days, political operatives got paid to construct convenient narratives, while reporters got paid to distill hidden truths. As the distinction between operator and reporter disappeared, ordinary people learned that fictitious narratives completely replaced any representation of objective reality. Because a free press has always been instrumental in containing institutional corruption, the implosion of professional journalism should be understood as a late-stage symptom of our present system's impending death. Reporters who spend more time explaining why boys should dominate girls' sports than investigating how mail-in-ballot fraud subverts democratic elections cannot be taken seriously as factual custodians or arbiters of truth. J.B. Shirk says, while citizens have adjusted to journalism's irrelevancy, they have held out hope that science, a philosophy dedicated to the pursuit of knowledge, would be more resilient. However, Science, too, has abandoned rigorous discipline for the ease of regurgitating unscrutinized narratives. Perhaps the most consequential upside of of COVID was its exposure of most medical doctors as unscientific bureaucrats, willing to parrot absolute nonsense if it meant they got paid. That's harsh, but, but he's not wrong. By the way, don't throw all doctors under the bus, but 
There were enough who took those incentive payments, you know, from the vaccine companies. Uh, hey, you know, if you'll uh, get people to take the vaccine, that's a $200 spiff for you. Hey, why not? I mean, why would a prescription, why would a physician rather prescribe an experimental vaccine in lieu of available over-the-counter remedies that have been around for 50 or more years? Because pharmaceutical companies can't make money from generic medicines with expired patents. And medical doctors can't procure financial benefits from pharmaceutical companies if they don't first push their newest drugs. Why would any physician coerce patients, even healthy ones, to undergo experimental treatments without their informed consent, including explicit warnings of known side effects and the impossibility of knowing potential long-term harms, in blatant disregard of the Nuremberg Code's well-established principles for preventing crimes against humanity? Well, the answer is because white coats who uninquisitively follow government orders have sold their ethical obligations to the highest bidder. Again, that's harsh, but I don't think it's uh, undeserved. J.B. Shirk says, as with journalism, the scientific pursuit of knowledge has become a hustle. The World Health Organization and the World Economic Forum have made it abundantly clear that global pandemics and man-made climate change are existential threats that coincidentally require more intrusive public surveillance and greater government control over the economy. It should be no surprise that the prospect of future apocalypse tends to uh, short-circuit the human mind and convince otherwise rational people to hand over their freedoms to doom and gloom charlatans and fear-peddling fear carnival barkers. It should be a surprise, however, when handsomely paid scientists manipulate research and punish academic dissent in order to fraudulently support bureaucrats' self-serving conclusions. When scientific consensus arrives in advance of scientific corroboration, researchers aren't seeking objective knowledge, but rather selling snake oil for professional aggrandizement and monetary gain. He says, with the deaths of journalism and science laid bare before the public, a salubrious shift in social consciousness has, occur has occurred. People are once again asking critical questions in search of basic truths. For too long, professional disciplines have insisted on doing society's thinking. Whenever significant public policy debates have arisen, common people have been condescendingly told, leave that to the experts. With busy lives filled with other obligations, most people have been okay with this arrangement. Caveat emptor, let the buyer beware, and other fundamental notions of personal responsibility have been traded for the modern convenience of letting the Food and Drug Administration, the White House Press Corps, and the Central Intelligence Agency, decide what's true. If processing information and making wise decisions is part of what it means to be alive, then the effect of transferring these responsibilities to third-party institutions is a bit like lobotomizing a population because you end up with a highly dependent society beholden to the mercies of those designated experts. So for a while, a lobotomized population might find relative happiness within this arrangement. That's as long as the experts continue to share the population's general worldview and can be trusted to pursue policy goals that consistently advance the population's priorities. However, if the experts are guided by beliefs divergent from those of society, or worse, if they reveal themselves as a, as a privileged class filled with rapacious liars and frauds, then common people have no other choice but to reclaim their natural authority by exercising their own brains. Now, he says the latent energy that's beating up right now beneath the surface of Western civilization, that's what happens 
when a slumbering society begins powering up its long dormant capacity for self-government. As old brain cells are put back into proper use, the body politic is trying to remember how to do things it once took for granted. And in trying to separate lies from truth, it has to remember why virtuous character establishes mutual trust. As it recalibrates its moral compass, society's a little unsteady on its feet. Cellular, cellular networks go down and nobody knows what to believe. So this means lack of trust in government, news media, and science is producing something far more extraordinary. That would be a spiritual awakening. We'll talk about why that's happening, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to finish up on that article by J.B. Shirk about as trust in government falls, spiritual faith increases. So can we at least agree that, you know what? It's a lot harder to trust government. It's a lot harder to trust media. I'm having serious trust issues with the science as well, just because I I see some uh, serious signs that uh, maybe that's been co-opted too. And you would think that's a bad thing. Oh, our faith in institutions is crumbling. By the way, that's a that is a sure indicator that uh, you are deep into a fourth turning. That's how fourth turnings play out, and it's part of the crisis. But as JB Shirk points out on americanthinker.com, the good news is this is leading to a spiritual awakening. Why? Well, it's because the illusion that government-run institutions have our best interests at heart has shattered into a million pieces. And it's impossible to glue those pieces back together in some kind of reconstructed truth. If government and its vassals in science and journalism can no longer stand in as secular priests, well, then people desperate for authentic truth are, a- are forced to ask tough questions of themselves. Now, J.B. Shirk says, in his experience, the tougher those questions become, the more likely that people find their way to God. And once they find their way to God, they tend to realize they were meant to govern themselves. As freedom is God's gift to every soul, spiritual revolutions always precede political ones. And he says that inalienable truth ought to give every true believer some needed peace of mind. I agree, and that's why I shared this article with you. And there is a link to it in my show notes, which are for February 26th, 2024. That's where our trust needs to be. I know, I know Trump, Trump is, uh, he's rolling up all the different primary victories and, uh, you know, how he would not be the GOP nominee. I mean, short of, you know, the, the powers that be trying to take him out of the equation, you know, like kill him. You know, I don't know. I think he's pretty much got this thing locked in. And, and it's, isn't it crazy? You know, the, the amount of effort being put into propping up Joe Biden. Oh, there's nothing wrong with him. There's nothing wrong here. Actually, I'll tell you more about uh, the article of the day coming up here in the, in the next segment. But it has to do with why Joe Biden isn't sweating, but he should be. I'll save that for a little bit later. In the meantime, let's go back to a couple other things here. Um, oh, this was a great, great article. This is... Uh, there's a, there's a huge difference between a culture of life and a culture of death. And as you can see right now, some of the most bitter, um, 
contention that we see in our society is over topics like abortion. So I want to share with you this article from intellectualtakeout.org. This is from Michael Cook. It's titled Lessons in Humanity from Prehistoric People. I thought this was fascinating. In ancient cultures, he says, some children were born with Down syndrome and other genetic disorders, but our prehistoric forebears treated them with great respect. That's the conclusion reached by an international team of researchers who studied the DNA of human remains in ancient burial sites. Now, their global study involved screening DNA from about 10,000 ancient and pre-modern humans for evidence of autosomal trisomies. That's a condition where people carry an extra or third copy of one of the first 22 chromosomes. It's identified six cases of children with Down syndrome and one case of a child with Edwards syndrome in human populations in Latter-day Spain, Bulgaria, Finland, and Greece from as long as 4,500 years ago. It also confirmed the case of a six-month-old boy with Down syndrome found in a large portal tomb in northwestern Ireland dating back to 3500 B.C. Now, the research published in Nature Communications indicated that these eight individuals were buried with care and often accompanied by special objects, showing that they were appreciated as members of their ancient societies, even if they were premature or perhaps stillborn or very young. So, for instance, on the island of Aegina, Greece, researchers identified a 12- to 16-month-old girl known as LAZ-019 who died between 1400 and 1200 B.C. She was buried wearing a necklace of 93 beads made of glass paste, faience, I don't even know, I have no idea what that is, and carnelian of different colors and sizes. A 28-week-old male, female rather, known as CRU-024, was found in a grave in Navarra, Spain, dating back to between 800 and 500 B.C. She was buried with rich grave goods, including bronze rings, a Mediterranean seashell, and surrounded by the complete remains of three sheep and or goats. Dr. Adam Rorlock of the University of Adelaide says, While we expected that people with Down syndrome certainly existed in the past, This is the first time we've been able to reliably detect cases in ancient remains, as they can't be confidently diagnosed by looking at the skeletal remains alone. Down syndrome occurs when an individual carries an extra copy of chromosome 21. The researchers were able to find these six cases using a novel statistical statistical technique to accurately and efficiently screen tens of thousands of ancient DNA samples for excess DNA. No adult cases of Down syndrome were identified, but that's not surprising. Dr. Rorlock told Mercator in an email, even as recently as the 1940s, people with Down syndrome had a life expectancy of approximately 12 years, although this has risen significantly to around 60 years of age due to improvements in modern health care. The study also uncovered one case of Edwards syndrome. That's a rare condition caused by three copies of chromosome 18 that comes with far more severe symptoms than Down syndrome. The remains indicated severe abnormalities in bone growth and an age of death of approximately 40 weeks gestation. All of the cases were detected in perinatal or infant burials, but from different cultures and over time periods. Now, that's interesting. These individuals were buried according to either the standard practices of their time or were in some cases treated specially. That indicates that they were acknowledged as members of their community and were not treated differently in death, says Dr. Rorlock. 
Now, a co-author and archaeologist from the Autonomous University of Barcelona, Professor Roberto Risch, says he was puzzled by the special treatment given to these disabled children, saying the remains could not confirm that these babies survived to birth, but they were among the infants buried within homes at the settlement or within other important buildings. We don't know why this happened, as most people were cremated during this time, but it appears as if they were purposefully choosing these infants for special burials. So what does all this suggest about the attitudes of ancient people toward the disabled? This is what Mercator asked Dr. Rohrlock. Here's his answer, quote, Given that each of these children were given either standard or, in some cases, very special burials, we can see that they were treated no differently to, no differently to others or were given even more care in death. He says, I think that this seems to indicate that in the cases that we observed, these children were loved and cherished just like any child today. That is certainly an encouraging thought. End quote. Now, Michael Cook says, it's nearly impossible to understand the mentality and beliefs of prehistoric, preliterate Europeans living 3,000 to 6,000 years ago in conditions which we would find impossibly primitive. But the archaeological record seems to suggest that even in those primitive communities, intellectually and physically disabled children were treated as precious and human, even those who were premature. Most Western countries take a very different view of genetic disability in unborn children. About 90% of pregnant women who receive a diagnosis of Down syndrome choose to have an abortion. Now, interestingly, this had a counterpart in the ancient world. At the same time as little CRU-024 was being interred with such tenderness and respect in Navarra, the Carthaginians, the rich and powerful masters of the Mediterranean, were sacrificing their own children to the god Moloch. Some contemporary historians have disputed this, but none of the ancient historians. More than 30 Greek and Latin writers referred to this savage custom. According to the Greek historian Plutarch, those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats as if they were so many lambs or young birds. Meanwhile, the mother stood by without a single tear or moan, but should she utter a single moan or let a single tear fall, she had to forfeit the money, and her child was sacrificed nevertheless. Yikes. Perhaps the difference, says Michael Cook, was that the Carthaginians, like us, were rich, powerful, and highly civilized. Ooh, there's a parallel there. I can think of another civilization that uh, was rich, powerful, highly civilized. That would be uh, Weimar Germany. Very, very well-educated people, and yet, what happened? How did the Weimar Republic go off the rails and... How did they elect a dictator who led them straight into the fires of ruin? Okay, the short answer is, they turned off their consciences. They became so educated in their minds that they had no need to distinguish between right and wrong. By the way, if you have ever done any research on, you know, well, what was, uh, what was Berlin like, you know, in, in those days before, you know, the 1930s? The debauchery was legendary. The cross-dressing, legendary. The, the orgies and so forth. They, look, they, they were about as hedonistic as you could get. But don't worry. Drag Queen Story Hour is about to start up. And I'm sure that nothing bad would ever come from that. And then one day, just out of nowhere, they elected the guy with the funny mustache. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Final segment today. Let's jump right to the article of the day. And this one's courtesy of Sasha Stone. I've told you before, I really have come to enjoy her writing. Not only is she very good at uh, putting two and two together, but uh, she really comes up with some great information resources and and visuals and examples to back up what she's talking about. And she has a terrific article on why Joe Biden isn't sweating, but he should be. And this has to do with, you know, the fear that right now the fear of Donald Trump in particular is huge. I mean, if you look at what the mainstream media is saying right now, people are just freaking out. Bob Costas was going on. Trump is absolutely the worst politician of, of our lifetimes. He's the worst politician in American history. And there's this cult of people who just keep going back to him over and over. They just can't let him go. They're afraid. Nate Silver's worried. The New York Times is worried. Politico's worried. Rolling Stone is worried. Bad enough so that Sasha Stone, Sasha Stone says it's so bad that they've given up towing the party line. They're actually speaking out for the first time since Biden took office. What scares them? They don't believe that, uh, that Biden can beat Trump. And I think this is interesting because, uh, you know, if they're planning on stealing the election again, wouldn't they feel pretty confident? But then think about this. How many votes did it take to flip those, what, five swing states and get the requisite number of electoral college votes to install Biden as president? I think it really came down to about 47,000 votes. How are they going to come up with millions of votes necessary to steal the election this time? Mail-in ballots made it a lot easier the last time, but anyway, the point is, Joe Biden is, uh, he's very vulnerable. Trump is actually starting to lead him in, in various polls. And even the news media is like, can that be right? How could this be? But of course, the left has kind of painted itself into a corner, haven't they? Kamala Harris. I mean, you know, if you, if you want to see Kamala Harris right up there alongside George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and FDR, well, we should put her on, on Mount Rushmore. First woman president. If Biden were to... Uh, basically win election in November and then graciously step down and make her president. Wow, that would secure his legacy, wouldn't it? But the Democrats are, are kind of stuck because even among the political class, Kamala is not well liked. But if they were to hop over her to a white man like uh, Gavin Newsom, I don't know. The woke world might just implode. Anyway, this is a fairly lengthy article, but it's uh, it's so worth your time. This is the article of the day from Sasha Stone, Why Joe Biden Isn't Sweating, But He Should Be. Okay, two other quick articles I want to point out to you. This one, uh, this I, I pulled this one up as a memory off of Facebook, but it was so good that I wanted to share it with you again. If, uh, if you had to co-opt a generation, if you had to mold their minds... What better way than by infiltrating public schools and doing it there, out of sight of parents? And this is an article from, I believe, 2022. Yeah, this is August 2022. Marxist indoctrination in, in America's elementary schools. This is from Julio M. Scheiling. I hope I'm saying that correct. I just want to make sure. Yep, I think I got the spelling right there. I'm going to hit a couple of quick excerpts here, but the problem here is there is no doubt says Scheiling, that cultural Marxism, 
detrimentally has managed to permeate profusely one of its most toxic intellectual artifacts, critical theory, into the curriculum of practically every American college and university. Okay, I don't think that's too much of a surprise. We've watched that go, uh, you know, come into place over the last, what, 30 years or so? But now we see this indoctrination campaign being extended to the elementary school level. And he says, given the priority that the left in America has given to the issue of race with its calculated false claims of systemic racism, critical race theory has been the most overt manifestation of this subversive penetration into the grade school system. And he says, CRT, it must be noted, has not been the exclusive tool of the cultural Marxist propagandist war chest. Gender ide- ideology and c- critical queer theory has also invaded America's public primary level education system. Now think back just a couple of years and think, have things uh, gotten worse on those fronts? And I'd have to say, absolutely. So a couple of examples, and again, keep in mind, these were from a couple of years ago. Fifth graders at an inner city Philadelphia elementary school paid homage to black communism and Angela Davis, a prominent militant of the Black Panther domestic terrorist movement. City Journal published a report from whistleblower documents at a source inside William D. Kelly's school relating how a teacher structured social studies modules and classes to include simulating black power rallies and adulating the life of Davis the devout communist, radical feminist, and recipient of the infamous infamous Lenin Peace Prize. Interesting. So black power, pro-black communism simulation carried out at the Philadelphia's William D. Kelly School included the students marching on stage carrying picket signs that read, Free Angela! Jail Trump! Black power and black power matters. But hey, nobody's trying to manipulate the minds of these kids. Now here's the problem. This is not an isolated incident where a fifth grade elementary school teacher took it upon herself to carry out Marxist proselytizing. It's part of a much broader scheme authorized by the school district of Philadelphia and its superintendent. How about that? Superintendent Height issued a uh, anti-racism declaration as part of the school's poli- school district's policy. And essentially what that declaration did was it buys into much of the Marxist CRT rhetoric that race is the social construction that set the foundation and built the infrastructure for the United States we know today. Racism is the root of all other forms of injustice and provides the nourishment needed for other systems of oppression to thrive. And it continues with revolutionary zeal. We must be bold and courageous, willing to do the necessary work to acknowledge and disrupt racist ideologies and behaviors. So apparently the school district of Philadelphia has grossly forgotten its role is to educate, not to train future communists to challenge American democracy. When you consider the callous contradiction that exists in Philadelphia between a most generous budget to teach children and the abysmal record of its education results, one could conclude that politicizing schools and the ideologization of education should be the last thing on their minds. The School District of Philadelphia has an annual $3.4 billion budget with over 18,000 employees. However, this school, cited within the mentioned Philadelphia district, has consistently been one of the worst performing in the whole state of Pennsylvania, judged academically. Of Kelly School students by the sixth grade, only 3% of them will be proficient in math and only 9% in reading. Can you believe that? Single digits. The minimal literacy rate of its students at graduation will be around 13. 
13%. So to the left, says Julio Scheiling, political power is everything. Race, a weapon in Marxism's arsenal against the American Republic, is being exploited at all costs. Philadelphia's children are a prime example of this. This is a true example of exploitation. Black American communists in control of school districts are diverting public funds for subversive indoctrination. I like how he puts this. Schools should teach, not mold potential, not mold potential communist militias. Cultural Marxism CRT must be stopped. I just love how people still do, oh, it's not even happening, but if it was, it would be a good thing. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> one final article, and this is a good one just considering the, the rise of AI. I mean, we talked about AI's Gemini uh, uh, erasure of history and that basically became the memory hole uh, for Google this last week. That's caused a lot of waves, but it's sparking a lot of fear among people that their skills and talents are about to become obsolete, not so much because it's rewriting history, but because AI could take their jobs. So I've got an article here from Dylan Allman. This was published on the Foundation for Economic uh, Education's website. And he asked, why are some people so upset about the new generative AI models? To put it simply, AI damages their ego. Isn't that something? I'll let you discover this for yourself. I, I will say this. He does make the note here. Dylan says, AI is not the enemy of human creativity. It's the next chapter in its evolution. And what's threatened by AI is not our purpose or our ability to create, but our ego. And in the grand scheme of things, he says that's a small price to pay for a world enriched by higher quality, more innovative, more efficient, creative works. Okay, now I'm not an artist, so I'm not feeling particularly threatened. But you do, you listen to people who are, you know, wary about AI. Well, what's it trying to do here? There are a lot of people who feel like it's going to take over for them and make their jobs obsolete. Hey, now I've seen that happen, especially over the years working in radio. I mean, there was a time where you had to have a live person there spinning the records or, you know, operating every single function that took place on the station. Then the computers and automation systems came in. And on the one hand, it made things easier. But on the other hand, there came a point where we looked around and said, hey, this is doing everything we do. Notice our staff got a lot smaller after that, too. Huh. This is The Brian Hyde Show.